On to useful and productive, Colossians chapter 1. Um, if you have been following along, it is time for the theology to really pick up, and I'm, and I'm serious about that. Up until now in the book, we've basically been in Christianity 101. Now it's actually time to start applying the things that we have learned and seeing what they ma- why they matter. So things like, who is Jesus, and why is that important? What's the church? Why is that important? Who are you? And who am I? And why is that important? All of that and much, much, much more. And by much, 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 much more, if I remember to get this straight, because sometimes I plan things out really well and they work, and sometimes I plan things out really well and I start talking and they go in a different direction, there's something to be looking on the, look, on the lookout for. They're on the lookout for. That's how English is supposed to work, <sighs> I think. <laughs> I am not the authority on how English should work most Sunday mornings. Something to be on the lookout for this morning is making sure that we understand that, as I mentioned last week, you don't get to the middle of chapter one and forget everything that came before. Later on, as we get down the line, when we get to chapters two and three, you don't forget what was in chapter one. This is building and it's standing upon what has come before. Likewise, you don't read Paul and forget the 1,800 years of Israeli history that goes before that, going all the way back to Abraham. You need that context. You need that understanding. Therefore, as we go through this and we seek to make sense of what Paul is teaching, we wish to make sense of it in light of the history of Scripture, specifically what has been laid down in the Old Testament. So, I have them marked in my notes, but that doesn't mean anything. (laughs) Some Sundays. So, I will try to make sure I highlight them as we go through, because as you read your Bible, always remember we want to read with context in mind. So, you ready to dive in? Okay. Verse 15. He is the invisible, the invisible, I cannot read. We're off to a bad start if I can't read English. We're, we're skipping words. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So this is explaining why Christ has been able to do the things that has been, have been described thus far in the book. Christ has accomplished because of who he is. And this is, again, not unique to just Paul here in Colossians, Hebrews 1, talking about Christ being the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and that he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus did this in his earthly ministry in John 10, proclaimed that I and the Father are one, and the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. This is why that question about Jesus being the greatest creation during that little survey should terrify you. What's the point Paul is making? That Christ is God. Jesus is God in flesh. It's the point Jesus made in his earthly ministry. Oh, yeah, I don't know if we have this anywhere, so you might just have to take my word for it. Ask someone else who was here. Those of you that remember when we went through the Gospel of John. Remember how I kept pointing out to you, people look at you and say, you know, I just wish there was a place in the Bible where you could just point to me where Jesus claimed to be God. And I was like, oh, look, it's right there in John 1. And then it was right there in John 2, and it was in there in John 3, and it was in there in John 4. You're sensing the pattern here? The entirety of the Gospel of John was Jesus basically going, I'm God. Hey, 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 are you paying attention? Do I need signs? Do we need like those ribbon dudes they put out in front of the auto parts stores, you know? <laughs> Why do they do those things? 
They get your attention, but has anybody ever stopped and driven by like a furniture store opening and seen one of those things and gone, they must have amazing recliners. We must stop. Look at the ribbon dancer dude in the front. <laughs> well, see, that, I appreciate that. I, I, of course, now I have, now this, that's the problem. See, we're in church. The ribbon dancer means something completely different in church, right? They did the, the little dudes at the furniture store, but if you if you grew up in a traditional church, you you saw there was a fourteen year old girl in some congregation who ribbon danced to some song, and you know, sitting there going, <laughs> "What was that? Late nineties, early two thousands was the interpretive dance craze in churches. That was that was when that was a thing. Sorry, if you missed that, be blessed. <laughs> now." Let's cover something because there is something in here that lends credence to why people get that theology wrong and why people answer that question wrong. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, you hear firstborn and you immediately think what? No, no, no. When I describe something or someone as the firstborn, what does that mean to you? They're the oldest. I'm the firstborn kid. I'm the firstborn cousin. I'm the firstborn grandkid. I'm something. You mocked your siblings. You mocked all the other grandkids. I know you did. It's okay. I take that back. It may not have been okay, but I know you did it anyway. Realize that what Paul is addressing, are you ready for your big fancy theological word of the day? I'm not making any promises. There are not more, but this is at least the first one. He is speaking ontologically. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm the only weirdo in the room that actually uses that in a sentence for fun. So, well, maybe Lou, you're a weirdo that might use that. Yeah, you When we talk about ontology, we are referring to the nature of being. This has nothing to do with birth order. This has to do with a figurative use onto who you are. If you would like an example of this, go back to Exodus chapter 4. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now stop and realize what's being said here. Was Israel the first nation that God ordained? No, there were other nations in Scripture before Israel. Was Israel the beginning of God setting aside a people unto himself? No, he had been doing that since the garden. So when God is referring to Israel as firstborn, does that mean they're the first ones amongst After Israel is where everybody else comes in line. It was Israel first, and then every other nation was formed, every other nation was called. No, it has to do with preeminence with where they stand in the world because of the work that God has accomplished. That is how Paul intends this with Christ. Christ is not the firstborn of creation in that he was the first one that God made and that everybody else came second. It is, he is the preeminent, the exalted one above creation. And by the way, this is your first marker in history, understanding the testimony of the Old Testament. What is Christ doing in his ministry? Hmm. Not a fair question. Hold on. Yeah, I used to have a, a college professor that would do that. Is he would uh, all of his exams had to go through the Scantron because he would then take the top ten percent of the grades, and if there was a question that more than half of the top ten percent got wrong, he would throw it out and give you credit for it if you got it wrong. Because his assumption is if the best kids in the class got the answer wrong, something was wrong with the question. That's what that was. We're throwing that out. One of the things that Jesus is doing in his ministry is fulfillment. He is the place that Israel's success is to be found. So, God takes Israel out of Egypt. How'd they do? (laughs) God takes Christ out of Egypt. How does he do? God places Israel in the land. How'd they do? Christ in the land, in the ministry. How does he do? 
Israel is given the sacrifices for the covering of sin. How'd they do? Christ as the covering for sin, the sacrifice. How does he do? There was a line of high priests to be faithful unto God to offer sacrifice. How'd they do? Christ is the faithful high priest who perseveres eternally because he is eternal. How'd he do? Christ is the fulfillment of the promises of God in Israel. He is not a new thing. He is the culmination of all of those things. So as Israel firstborn, preeminent testimony to God's mercy and grace, Christ now steps into that line. Christ fulfills the promise. He is the preeminent of creation. He is the testimony of God's grace and mercy. He is the testimony of God's judgment and wrath. He is the testimony of all that God is in his creation. And he will succeed because he redeems those who are his and he will crush how much of sin when his judgment comes. All of it. And he will leave nothing unturned. Christ stands in fulfillment. This is again why you have to read in light of everything, literally everything that has come before. So Jesus, just in case you were missing that from earlier, Jesus is not a created being. He is the eternal God now in flesh. Verse 16, for by him, talking about Jesus, all things were created both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So not only is Christ's nature godly, but his work and his attributes are of God. So when we say that Jesus is God, we just don't mean that like he acted like him on occasion. We mean all of his work and all of who he is, is of God. So why do we use this? Uh, 16, the computer's locked. (laughs) Yeah, now nothing wants to cooperate. So when it says, by him, all things were created. Well, what's the first Bible verse? There we go. In the beginning, God created. Hang on. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. (laughs) See, I could have done one of those Bible narrations. Oh, that's what we should do. We should do a bad British accent and do one of those Bible narrations and see if we can sell it for like 12 cents. Think think anybody would buy that even as a gag? No, I wouldn't buy it either, so don't feel bad. (laughs) Now, again, is this unique to Paul? Does Paul just come up with this idea out of his own thin air and nobody else had any idea like this before? Gee, I wonder if there's one of these Gospels that we could go through that's constantly proving that Jesus is God. Ooh, ooh, ooh! In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. When Jesus shows up to tell John about what's going to happen at the end of time, what does he start off with? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come the Almighty. That's Christ standing there in his glory, John freaking out, laying down on the ground like a dead man, realizing now what? That he's seeing Jesus no longer veiled as he did in his earthly ministry, but he is seeing him glorified, and that is how people will see him when he comes again. So Paul is building out in the case here. Jesus is not a created being. He is God. That includes not just who he was, but who he is and what he does, including what he has already accomplished. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, meaning he is eternally creating, sustaining, and sovereignly ruling. Now, if I told you eternally creator, eternal creator, eternally sustaining his creation and sovereignly ruling over everything, who am I describing? Describing God. Who is Paul describing? Specifically Jesus. This is, again, why I keep pointing out 
when Christians stopped being killed for their faith and had a chance to sit down and argue about this because they weren't dying for five minutes, this was the first argument that the early church had was the nature of Christ. Go back to every early church heresy and they are arguing over the nature of Christ. Early church heresies either tried to deny the divinity of Christ or the humanity of Christ. And the reason why they did one or the other is because you could read your Bible and someone could look at you and go, look, look, here's all the verses that talk about how Jesus was a man. Therefore, he couldn't possibly be God. And you would read all the verses and say, yeah, 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 I agree with you, Jesus was a man. And then someone else would come along and say, look, look, here's all the verses that describe Jesus as God. So it's clear he couldn't have been a man. And you go, yeah, I see that. All of those verses do describe how Jesus was God. The problem is what? Both of those are in your Bible, which means you're now the Christian going, but if I read my whole Bible and not just like cherry pick parts out of this, I see what? That there is Jesus and he is God and he is man. And now I got to figure out how to make sense of this. And that's where we get things like the hypostatic union describing the nature of Christ, that he's fully God and fully man without the intermingling or intermixing of the two natures. That's where we get things like Trinitarian theology, where we're sitting going, we've got the Father described as God, we can see that. We've got the Son described as God, we can see that. We've got the Spirit described as God, we can see that. Now, somebody make sense of that. Somebody smarter than me. Quick, make sense of that, please. (laughs) Anybody? please. And we've been trying to make sense of it. And again, I keep telling you, if you would like a nice headache this afternoon, go home and try to make sense of the Trinity in your mind. That there are three, but there is one nature, there is one essence, but they are individual persons. And how does that work? And I have no idea. And I'm going to stop before I give myself a headache because I usually have one at this time of year anyway. We defend it and we proclaim it because it is how scripture presents God. It is how scripture presents Christ. Now, practically, why do you care? Well, you should care because you need a representative. Christ has to be man in order to stand before the Father to represent you. This is part of the argument that Hebrews actually makes between people and angels. Christ doesn't represent angels. Why not? Because he's not one. Like, can you go represent the lizard people in court? (laughs) Can you stand on their behalf as their people and and represent them? Just trying to check to see if we have any lizard people in here now. That's, my, that's one of my favorite conspiracy theories. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, there are YouTube videos that explain how like the Rockefellers and the Roosevelts, and I think even the Kennedys are lizards, and they pretend to be people, and then they run the world. It's awesome. And by awesome, I mean slightly deranged, because it's like you watch it, and it's like, these people actually like think this. Whoa! It, it's crazy. Okay, let's see if I can offend everybody. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually weirder than if you ever watch a whole bunch of Flat Earth videos. And I do watch Flat Earth videos for fun because I, I, try to, I actually try to listen to, to have them make sense of it. There was a, a Netflix documentary several years ago that I was so disappointed in because I thought it was actually going to explain what the Flat Earthers believe. And instead, it was an hour and a half of making fun of them. And I was really disappointed because I, I wanted the documentary to actually tell me why they believe what they believe. And it was just like, look at these idiots. These people are stupid. And I was like, well, this is disappointing. Anyway. No, you can't represent the lizard people because you're not one. And if you are, don't tell me. <laughs> okay? There are things in life I don't want to know. God, Christ must be man to stand before God on your behalf. But he also must be God to eternally sacrifice, to have a sacrifice that is living and active day by day. Because if he was just a dude, what would happen after we killed him? He'd be dead. That's how death works. You die and then you're dead. That's how this game is played. Instead, because he is God, he rises because death has no claim. He is eternal, therefore he works. And by the way, not a new idea in Scripture here for understanding. Go back to things like Micah 5. As for you, Bethlehem, 
too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one who will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. It's it's a promise of the Messiah. A promise that the Messiah will be like who? Like God. Well, how do you be like God? Does God share? Like, do you get to climb up tomorrow and be like, hey, God, you know, it's been kind of fun, but I'm tired of this human thing. I'd like some of your power. What do you say? In order to be like God, you must be God. This is the argument that Paul is building out. This is why, again, Jesus has been able to accomplish what he has accomplished and is also why the things flowing forth from this argument will be what they are. So verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, because Christ is the one who rules, therefore he is the one that we follow. You see how that works? If you're in charge and you get to make all the rules, what should we be doing? We should be following the one who is in charge and making all the rules. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, what did Paul tell the Corinthian church? When should the Corinthians follow after Paul? Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Jesus is the actual goal of your Christian living. One of my favorite sections of scripture is Ephesians 4 and 5. This is from Ephesians 4. We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So don't pay attention to the schemes of the world, don't pay attention to the people of the world, but follow after Christ. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Why? Because of who he is. He has accomplished what he has accomplished because of who he is. Why are you now the people of God? Why are you now a part of the people of God? Because you just decided one day? See, that's, there's bad Baptist singing. How many of you thought the song? How many of you started thinking it? <laughs> Karen's a bad person as I am. I have decided. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, I'm better now. <laughs> Sorry, there's a whole section of the Baptist hymnal that gives me like nightmares and shakes because you had to sing them at the end of every service. And it just, it, it just I don't know. It's like, it's like an abused child. You grow up and you're like, I don't want to sing that anymore. We sang it every week and I don't want to hear it ever again. Sorry. But no, you haven't willed you in. That's why you can't will you out. It is Christ's accomplishment and not yours. This is going to be the second history thing we're going to get to in just a minute. But that is what makes you the kingdom of God, the work of Christ. Why can Christ do that? Because of who he is. This is what Peter talks about. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you follow because of who he is and what he has brought you into. He is the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This again, as God has accomplished. What has he accomplished? Just always make sure we cover even the most obvious of things, Romans chapter 5. While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is, there we go with the Johnny Depp thing again. This is the second part of your history and your context in scripture. Read your Old Testament. Read through the successes, air quotes, and failures of the nations. How many of them get it right? How many nations, when you, how many, how many people, like how many people when you read through your Old Testament, do you look at and be like, there it is. That's the guy. That's the one who deserves to step into the kingdom. He has followed God faithfully. He nailed it. That's the one. How many are there? 
I mean, based on what's recorded in his book, maybe I like I could give you could give Isaiah some credit, right? But like, yeah, even then, we have questions, and we're not sure, right? Who's the successful one in your Old Testament? Who's the star of the show? Who's the one that overcomes? Who's the one that builds up? Who's the one that conquers evil? Who is the one that secures the nation? Who is the one who brings peace? It is God. The second part of your history from your Old Testament is that it is a record of divine accomplishment, not human achievement. This is why, what, what is celebrated in Hebrews 11? We'll come back to this later, but what is celebrated in Hebrews 11? All that they did? All that they did based on what? What they believed and who they trusted in. Their power was not their own. Their power was from on high. Your Bible is a testimony to the work that God is doing, not to the work that we are doing. Unplug from him. He is the vine. You are the branches. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Nothing. Apart from him, you can do nothing. That's actually the good part of the song, but I won't go back to singing it, sorry. (laughs) This is the reminder here. He is the beginning, firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Over what does God rule? Everything. Okay, let's ask it the other way, just to make sure we're paying attention. Over what does God not rule? Okay, just making sure you're awake. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to lose you guys. Just have you, Jesus, no way. <laughs> Don't act like you weren't a seven-year-old once in a Sunday school class and somebody asked you a question, you didn't know the answer, what did you do? You said Jesus. Like, who put all the animals on the ark? Jesus! <laughs> I don't know. You know. We could make the case, but no, that's not what we're looking for here. God rules over everything. What is Paul making the case here? That this God who has redeemed you, the one who is God in flesh, what does he rule over? Everything, Philippians chapter 2, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By the way, the reason why I like reading some of these verses, as we're coming around again, Notice Philippians just says in three verses what Paul is saying here in like six or seven. How many new ideas do we have in our Bible? None. This is why I'm pointing you always back to your Old Testament, always back to your context and your history. When Paul is building out who Christ is, is he like, okay, guys, you know what? Um, Hey, Timothy, come sit down. We got to figure this out. Um, We got this Jesus guy. We got to be able to explain who he is. How are we going to do that? Like, what are we going to do? Like, what? There's nothing. Like, it would have been so nice if there was a history instead of just beaming him down like Star Trek. You haven't watched Star Trek yet? What's wrong with you? Come on. Um, okay, how, how are we going to explain this? And nobody got the Star Trek joke. That's disappointing. I literally just thought of that on the fly, too. Come on now. <laughs> Sorry. No, Paul does what? He goes, Jesus, the work, the ministry, does what? explains the history of Israel, explains the purpose of the law, explains the history of redemption, shows God's blessing to the nations. It's a fulfillment of everything. That's why every time Paul wants to describe something, he does what? He runs to an Old Testament text. He runs to one of the prophets, or he explains the fulfillment of the nation. I mean, Matthew does this in the gospel, seeing the parallels of Israel coming out of Egypt as what? A prophecy of Jesus and his work. 
because even Israel was not about Israel. It was about God. This is why this doesn't occur in a vacuum. We've, We've joked about this before, but if somebody walked in the back door right now and said, I'm God, follow me, and then like did the Chris Angel floating thing, you know, would we be like, oh, look, he's here, and there's a miracle to confirm it, or we'd be like, Somebody tackle that guy and, and call the people with the jacket that has the buckles in the back, please, before something bad happens. I mean, we wouldn't just do that. Would you expect Israel to just do that? Oh, look, it, dude, they claim to be God. We, we've got to listen. I mean, it's obvious. If you claim it, it must be true. Wasn't there a movie that did that where the guy was like the first person to come up with the idea of lying? <laughs> wouldn't that be a great world where you invented lying and nobody else thought about it before? Like, how rich would you be because you're a terrible person? Exactly. (laughs) Some of you are like, no, no, not me, not at all. No, instead Jesus does what? He fulfills a history. He fulfills a covenant. He fulfills promises that go back, at that point, millennia, to explain who he is. He doesn't just show up in a vacuum, but he's able to, Paul and Peter and John and Matthew and Luke are able to build upon a history so that they can describe it based on everything that God has said going back to the beginning. Verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. We were doing so good, now I'm about to make sure we don't get confused, okay? All of this has occurred because God has planned and acted. This is what we saw, go again, go back to John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is another one of those places where somebody goes, see, 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 and I'm not going to look because I'm just going to get annoyed. I know I am, so I'm just going to point at it and not look at it. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. See, 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 the Father is God. Jesus wasn't God because the Father somehow imparted this. One, in order to get that out of this verse, you would have to ignore like the three verses we just read before that. But two, what else would you have to ignore? All that other stuff that went along with those three verses we just did. Here's your history number three. This doesn't reimagine who Jesus is, this builds upon the idea in Scripture. When we talk about the work of the Father and the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit, we are not segmenting God. We are, uh, we're not even segmenting His work. We are describing it based on how it is presented to us, based on how God prepares for our representation. So again, let's go back to Jesus' earthly ministry. Let's go back to John here, John 5. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Sounds like what we were reading in John 10, doesn't it? But yeah, different, different time, I promise. He was not only because, he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, when you look at my kids, you don't automatically assume that they are me. They may have come from me, but you don't assume, oh, they are a representation of you. Now, if you knew me when I was my kid's age, you might think that. Actually, no, you wouldn't have. My kids are much better behaved than I am, so I have to give them credit for that. <laughs> I was a bad kid. I, I can fully admit. I, the fact that I lived this long is, is probably a testament to the, God, to the grace of God and, and the mercy shown, because I, I should have been dead a while ago, <laughs> and probably at the hands of my parents. 
<laughs> I would have deserved it. <laughs> I'm one of those people that I could look back and go, you know that time I got beat for that thing? Yeah, they were justified for that one. <laughs> it's okay. But in, Israel, in Israel's culture, in first century time, to claim to be a son was to be a representative of the father, was to be the father, was to stand in his place. The Jews got that, that every time Jesus claimed to be the son, to claim to reveal the father, to claim to explain the father, was to claim to be the father. Well, not to be the father, but to be like the father. I better make sure I don't become a heretic real quick. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. Why? Because there's no division. The one essence of God, the one nature, means there is no distinction between how they work, who they are. There is father, and his working is based on his nature as God. There is son, and his working is based on his nature, which is God. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. So Paul is understanding who Christ is and explaining him based upon the presentation that Scripture has, been, has given. So we see the Father and we see the Son. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This is where Paul annoys me, because these are one of those run-on Paul sentences that he's famous for. And a noun, man, a noun. Can we not use pronouns for everyone? Because there's two different people here, and they're both him, and that's frustrating. So, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity, basically, to dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile all things to the Father, having made peace through the blood of Jesus' cross, through Jesus, and I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. Does that make more sense? Are we good? I know you probably figured that out, but I just... If I read it and go, who was he and what was him and which one's which, then I just assume maybe somebody else had that question and want to make sure we cover it. This is the action that's showing that inter-Trinitarian, inter you say that three times fast, work of both Father and Son, where the planning of God, okay, here's where, here's where it's going to get confusing. Okay. Do not do the thing that I do on occasion, and I know that you do on occasion because we're human beings and it's nature. When someone says God, you immediately picture the Father, don't you? <laughs> See, you're like, stop it. <laughs> Get out of my head. Hey, it could be worse. You could be in my head. Think about how bad that would be. Okay. Aren't you so much, aren't you, aren't you so feeling the blessings of God right now that you don't have to like try to read my mind? See, there you go. So when we're talking about Trinitarian work, that tendency to think Father when someone says God is what's going to mess you up. Because then you try to start segmenting the work of the Spirit and the work of the Son away from the work of God, and it's not meant to be that way. So when we talk about the planning of God, we're not talking about the planning of the Father. We're talking about the planning of Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal from eternity. You with me so far? So when we talk about that planning of God that is then revealed and enacted for humanity based on the governance of that work by the Father who is in heaven, the enacting of that work of the Son who takes on flesh, and the sealing and fulfilling and empowering of that work by the Spirit who dwells in his people. You with me so far? Or have I lost you yet? <laughs> this is important, Dagnabbit. <laughs> Don't make me turn into Yosemite Sam's because I'm present. 
<laughs> I can't. It's not written down anywhere. <laughs> I would love to be able to repeat that. You had to catch it the first time. <laughs> There's no rewind. It'll be posted tomorrow. <laughs> so, okay, no, I will, I will endeavor. It will not be exact, but I will endeavor. When we talk about the planning of God in eternity... We are talking about the governance and ruling of that work by the Father who is in heaven, the enacting of that work of the Son in flesh, and the fulfillment and empowering and carrying forward of that work by the Spirit who is dwelling within his people. Is that close enough? Was that about right? Okay, there you go. <laughs> and sealing. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Art, art, art. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Again, I tell you, nobody else has fun on a Sunday morning. I do. Now, this is, again, not unique to what he's going to tell the Colossian church, and this is a demonstration of the work going back in eternity. So, 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. And the reason I like reading that there is that's Paul writing to Timothy. Who's writing to the Colossians again? Paul, just making sure. See, we got to remember these important things. This is why we covered who the author is and who he was writing to. This stuff matters. The Paul who's writing to the Colossians is going out of his way to explain what? That Jesus is God. That this work is important because Jesus accomplishes it because Jesus is God. The Paul that is writing to Timothy in Ephesus, don't quote me on that, is saying what? There's one God. But we've been describing Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, what's the testimony of Scripture going back to the beginning? There is how many gods? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's one. Paul gets that. Does that mean Paul has lost his mind, been kicked in the head by a mule, and he doesn't know what's going on? No, it means Paul is explaining redemption in God based on what? How it has been presented by God. Always remember our analogy. The bug in the jar never understands the boy who put him there. Ever, 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 ever. The bug just sits there and does what? Now, if the kid can open the jar, look in there, and talk in whatever bug language there is to explain himself to the bug, the bug can now do what? He can now begin to understand. Christian, you are the bug in the jar. You are the bug in the jar, and I will not start singing Alice in Chains, although I am tempted. <laughs> and if you know the song I'm thinking of, you're a bad person too. <laughs> now, but because God has explained himself, we can go, okay, God is one. I'm with you. Father, Son, Spirit. Okay, that's why the headache starts coming in, so we're going to pause going down that road. This is, again, the point that Paul is making, though. These realities are there because this is how God accomplishes what he accomplishes for our good and for his glory. Hebrews 9. He is the mediator of a new covenant, talking about Jesus, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. In order to present to you something that is eternal, what must the presenter be? I mean, you just take their word for it. Hey, this thing has always existed from the very beginning. How do you know? I don't know. Says it on the plaque over there. <laughs> no, Christ can eternally save because Christ himself is eternal. Now, verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, it continues on, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body 
through death. We are not going to dive into that as fun as it would be because that was the entirety of last week. Go back for homework and read Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. That's your refresher course. This work was done for us in spite of us. Always remember, history of your Bible is a history of whose accomplishment? God's accomplishment. You could conversely say the other side of that coin is the history of human failure. And yet, and yet, God has redeemed, God has rescued, God has secured for himself a people. uh, Ephesians 2 starts at 12. Remember that you were at the time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He has been able to accomplish this because of who he is. Good way to explain this. Can I die for you? No. We've already established that I'm no good. So that death wouldn't even... You didn't have to agree so easily. (laughs) Some of you heard that. That hurt. Wait a minute. That was like... That was like my grandma. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Suddenly I'm in a bad western. Yep, boy needed killing. Won't no good at all. (laughs) Felt that one. But because I am no good, and because I am not God, my death would accomplish nothing for you. It might buy you a little time, but that's about it, because you didn't get shot first or something. But Christ's death is accomplished, and does accomplish because of who he is, because he is God in flesh. So, verse 22 continues. You've been reconciled, he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This is what is accomplished. What changes, or better yet, who changes the hearts and minds of men? God does. God does. And if you don't believe me, think of your life in Christ. Think of where you are now, and if God has blessed you, think back to where you were 10 years ago. You the same person? Now, think to you 10 years before God transformed your heart. Would you have bet you are where you are now? That's always my favorite game to play. Be like, would you have bet 15 years ago we were going to be here? Would you have bet 25 years ago we were going to be doing this? And it's like, oh my goodness. No, because I start remembering me back then going, hmm. I've already told you today, it's it's a miracle I'm alive at this point. (laughs) You should be a little happy about that, by the way. (laughs) Some of you are like, "Eh." (laughs) sorry, it's a day. That's part of sanctification. That's part of the blessings. That's part of the accomplishment of Christ. Why can Christ accomplish that in your life? Because of who he is. Now, Another history portion, verse 23. If indeed, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, how do you know what God has accomplished for you? How do you know you are secure? We've asked this a thousand times. We're going to ask it a thousand more because it's important in this world. How do you know you stand firm in the faith? Do you remember the song that was playing? Do you remember the prayer that was prayed? Do you remember what the sermon was about that day? Do you remember how cold the water was? Because baptismal waters are always cold. I don't know why. (laughs) Even when they heat the water, it's not heated enough. (sighs) Do you pay attention to any of that? No, 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 no. You do the thing we were just talking about. Where are you now? Where were you 10 years ago? Where were you 10 years before that? Where were you 10 years before that? That is the work of God in your life. That is the work of God being accomplished day by day. 
It is how he brings his people to his kingdom. It is how he strengthens them for the work in the world and for eternity. Romans chapter 4. Is the blessing on the circumcised or the uncircumcised? Wait a minute. Yeah, I'm reading the right verse. I'm sorry. For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. The point being that Abraham is the father of faith. And we're going to get there. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had. Now, all of that to point out, the seal of righteousness is not because of what you have accomplished. The seal of righteousness is because of who God is and what he has accomplished. That's that last part. So the planning of God with the governance of the Father, with the accomplishment of the Son, with the continuation and the empowering by the Spirit. This matters in your world because of who God is and how he has not forsaken you. Now, Ask my history question again. Anybody read Hebrews 11 yet? Because <laughs> I've mentioned it like three weeks in a row now. See, some of you are giving me the most, like, I'm, okay, hang on. All right. All right. Disappointed dad, look of the day. All right, we good? There you go. I think you guys are purposely not reading it just so I will give you that look. All right, so I'm not, reading, I'm not mentioning Hebrews 11 anymore, but this is, again, part of your history of Scripture. How do you know who the faithful were in your Old Testament? Like, how did you know Abraham believed God and trusted in him? He brought Isaac up the mountain. How did you know that Rahab feared God more than, the, more than anything else and trusted in him? She hid the spies. How did you know Noah believed God and trusted in him? Built the big boat. All of these things are a revelation. They are not the sealing action. They are the revelation of the sealing action that who has accomplished. Like, just process that. Noah's the one living different from the people around him. And everyone looks at him and goes, why are you building this big old boat, dude? What's going on here? Oh, judgment's coming. Rain, flood, death, destruction. You might want to, you know, repent and believe. Eh. And what happens? How many people get on the boat? Eight. Eight people. They're all his family. This is the reminder. This is the question that we look at with the world and go, why are they like that? Because they have not God. Why am I like this? Because my heart has been changed. How are those two supposed to meet? By trusting in God to accomplish, by living for him in this world, and by proclaiming his excellencies and his mercies as I go day by day, by not participating in the fruitful, de unfruitful deeds of darkness, by not walking as they walk according to the darkness, but walking according to the light, by living for the God who has died for me and redeemed me. So, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. There's nothing new under the sun. It's the same gospel message that has gone back from the beginning. If we've accomplished nothing else between in here and Sunday school for most of you guys, I hope it is the realization that scripture makes sense as a whole. Because so often the world tries to pick it apart and pull it out here and there and make it, take it out of its place. It has a context. It has a coherent message from beginning to end. And if we can't see that, 
it's because either we're not looking or our hearts and minds have not been changed so that we can see that. So, let's recap everything. Jesus, who is God, has created, sustains, ruled, founded a church, has redeemed us, and is strengthening us. Strengthening us. Therefore, what should we do? And I'm serious. And the reason why I say I'm serious is because if your answer is, clean up our lives and change the world, I missed it. And I'm going to blame me because I didn't cover this properly. We change the way we see this place because of the change of heart in our lives. This is where, always remember, okay, so I said there was one fancy theological word, here's two, word, here's two more, you ready? Salvation is a monergistic exercise. Monergistic meaning one direction. Who saves? God, you don't climb halfway up and God goes, you're almost there, come on. Like a bad, like a bad Arnold Schwarzenegger movie where he's hanging off the elevator. Come on, get to the chopper. Gah! No. The chopper was leaving, you weren't on it, and they swooped down and went, come here, and put you on. That's how that worked. That's a monergistic work. Sanctification is a synergistic work that's cooperative, you and God. The Holy Spirit is going, hey, 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 what do you, stop that. Stop that. Stop it. And you're going, but, 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 okay. <laughs> See, you can keep warring against the Holy Spirit, but what's he going to do? Like when you told your kids to stop drawing on the wall and they picked up the crayon and kept coloring, did you go, look, I mean it, stop coloring on the wall. Stop it, stop it. And like 20 years later, they're still sitting there coloring and you're still going, stop it, stop it. Eventually, what did you do? Eventually, you took the crayon. Like, what did I just tell you? Welcome to sanctification. Now, does your child still have to stop coloring on the wall? Yes. Is there a good chance they're just going to go get another crayon? Yes. And if you love them and will discipline them, what will you do? You'll take that crayon too. Welcome to the work of the Holy Spirit. The difference between you as a parent and the Holy Spirit as God is eventually he's going to go, you keep coloring with that hand and we're going to cut it off. Because you're not going to continue living like this in Christ. Do you hear me? And you're supposed to go... Uh-huh, because if you don't say uh-huh, what's going to happen? Yeah, exactly. This is the work of God. And by the way, isn't that the most loving thing that could happen? I mean, I'm using a silly example of coloring on the wall, but we're not talking about you messed up the drywall. We're talking about you walking a pathway to hell. The most loving thing we can do is go, stop walking that way. If I have to take your feet off to stop you from going in that direction, I will. That's the work that the Holy Spirit does. But ultimately, who makes the decisions about what you want? You do. This is why I point out all the time that you never once fell into sin. We're like, oh my goodness, how did this happen? I did not see this coming. You went in there doing what? No, 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 this wouldn't possibly be bad. Stop looking at me. No, 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 this is good. We're going to be fine. You turn to like, the, remember, is it, was it about two, three years old where the kids do that, where they close their eyes and think you can't see them? <laughs> That's what we do with our sin. We're like, look, like if I do this and don't pay attention to my Bible and ignore everything that's going on, God won't know what's happening. <laughs> oh, look, it didn't work out well. That was you listening to the Holy Spirit and going, yeah, I think I'm going to make it this time. The synergistic work. You will be saved, but as through fire, as Corinthians warns you. 
Instead, the goal of Christian living is to recognize that the heart has been renewed, the sacrifice of Christ has been given, and it is the eternal God that is dwelling and carrying me forward. Therefore, as he has renewed my mind and brings these things to my instruction, I submit unto him and do not submit unto my sin, and I walk anew. That's what the therefore about this is supposed to be. It's a recognition that it is not just some lunatic in first century Israel all this time ago. Be like, hey, I got an idea. Let's start a religion. But it's God in flesh redeeming his people, building a kingdom, empowering them for the work and service thereof. Therefore, it is incumbent upon me to recognize that and evaluate who I am in this world and why I do what I do in this world, thinking through my life and service, not unto this place, but unto the kingdom that he is building, because that is the ultimate goal of his people. Because as Christ dwells in the presence of the Father, his children will do the same. I want to be fitted for that world, not the one that is being judged, because that is the heart he has given me and the mind he has renewed within me. Let's pray.